Pass it up, pass it up. Inch by inch, play by play, till we're finished. You're five feet nothing, a hundred and nothing. Shut up, old man, I ain't going nowhere. If we played them ten times, they might win nine, but not this game. Not tonight. 60 minutes falls out, let the paramedics sort them out. I must break you. Welcome to the Rewatchables special sports movie section. We are brought to you by SeatGeek, the presenting sponsor of the Bill Simmons Podcast. The easiest way to shop for the best tickets thanks to their revolutionary grading system. Buy and sell tickets in just two taps on your phone. Download the SeatGeek app today or go right to SeatGeek.com. Okay, this is a podcast Chris Ryan and I did a while ago and we are putting it in the Rewatchables feed. We're, We're consolidating. So this was uh, Moneyball, which I guess would would not make the Rewatchables Hall of Fame. May not even make honorable mention, but I'll tell you what it did make, the Sports Movie Hall of Fame. Here's a conversation Chris Ryan and I had about Moneyball with Brad Pitt. Moneyball intrigues both of us because I don't think people realize this is probably the best sports movie, not just of the decade, but of this century. Yeah. Of the 21st century. Yeah. The best sports movie is Moneyball. And, and I've never heard anyone say that. So me and Andy were just uh, talking about, um, or sorry, me and Sean were just talking about this on The Watch a couple of days ago, where we were talking about rewatchability and how now, because there's so much stuff to do, you have so much live sports, you have so much streaming television, that the idea of basically, oh, this movie's on TNT or HBO, I'm just going to, it's got my attention. I'm just going to watch it no matter how many times it's on, on HBO and Cinemax or whatever. That doesn't really happen anymore because anytime you're in front of a screen, you have like a list of things you got to get through. Yeah. But Moneyball is probably the most recent rewatchable movie that that I've I've come across where it's just like rewatchable sports or rewatchable anything flat out. Okay. Yeah. Because it's just so it's got so many different pockets of entertainment in it and it reveals itself over time. But as far as sports movies goes for as in a lot of ways, it's an anti-sports movie. It's a really traditional sports movie. And it's right. actually, it's just so entertaining. I think Creed has a chance to get there. It's really tough to tell within a year of when a movie comes out. But I think five years from now, I think Creed will be there for me. But the me. thing with, for me with Creed, even though Creed's got a bunch of really like rousing parts, Creed is ultimately like Friday Night Lights for me, where it's like, I know what I'm going to get, like what kind of mood right. it's going to put me beats. in. It's going to be dark. I'm going to have to think about the, you know Rocky being sick and everything. Yeah. With, with Moneyball... It's just pure entertainment. And and it's kind of if you love acting and all the, like the yeah, dorky stuff that we dialogue, like, it's perfect. It's great. So the, the sports movies, if you go just through since 1974, definitely had different phases, right? So you had, I would call the old school classics, which started with Longest Yard, Rollerball, 1974, and then peaked with Rocky and Slapshot in 76. And then they just kept replicating the Rocky plot pretty much for every sport and every kind of situation, but it's like the underdog makes good became the theme over and over again. And from that, you then had a bunch of different one-off movies that were really fun, like North Dallas 40, you know, Jericho mile American flyers, Mm -hmm. but it's all kind of in the same genre. And then it evolved and they ran out of ways to make that same movie. And it wasn't until 96 where like the modern sports movies started. And now you see like just so many niche movies Niche, niche, niche. Yeah. Why do I say niche? Some people say niche. I think some people do. Yeah. Whatever you and I are probably is. the two worst people to be pulling each other about how to pronounce things. Right. So <laughs> it's true. We're both terrible pronouncers. So there was this, 
era that started in 96 where it was like, let's go a, a level beyond. Yeah. Just like, this isn't just a baseball movie. This is for love of the game. It's about Kevin Costner. It's his last chance. He Should he retire? And it was just taken and it kept going and kept going. And then in the, in these last like nine, 10 years, it got really super focused. Yeah. And that led to Moneyball. Yeah. But you saw like Damned United, which both of us like. Yeah. That's a sports movie that they, I don't just don't even think they make in 1979. No. And it, it's, the funny thing with Damned United is that the book itself that it's based on is totally way different. This version yep. of it is much more like they cut between the bad parts of Brian Clough's career and the good parts of his career. But for the most part, I think that one thing that's been interesting, Daniel Knight is actually kind of part of this, is that, you know, we had so many decades of basically Bad News Bears, Longest Yard style underdog achievement stories. Yes. But now we're starting to see, I think over the last couple of years, you get here and there. um, We're so curious about how sports actually work that you're starting to get these Moneyball style movies that are like, we're going to delve into like this unseen part of sports, whether it's yes. draft day, Moneyball, um, you know, in some ways Jerry Maguire was the start of that with them being a sports agent. But the, the stuff like that is, I think, where we're going to keep seeing movies be made. And I was writing, I was writing for ESPN.com and page two at the time. And during the course of the last decade, I thought sports movies were dying because- yeah the Disney kind of type of sports movie had just taken over and it was just the remember the Titans and coach Carter and gridiron gang and glory road and rebound. Yeah. All these movies were, it was just, they were making the same movie over and over again, but invincible. Right. It was a college or high school team that nobody Feel believed good. in or had a tragedy attached to it. Then yeah. You had a movie star who plays the coach who's doubted at first and then brings them all together. And they'd spend most of the movies budget on the one guy. Yeah. And they would go and there'd be a cute girl in there, hardballs and that. But it was just over and over again, the same movie. And then there was this really interesting kind of flip to it that started at the end of last decade. But all of a sudden you had movies like Win Win. You had Warrior. You had Moneyball. You had Rush, Mm -hmm. which I think it was excellent. I wrote a whole piece about it three years ago. Just... They st- they were just trying to be a little little different, yes. and a lot of times it didn't work. Like trouble with the curve is terrible. Uh, Goon, I I liked, but oh right, there was has like not the, really aged that yeah. well. Yeah. Southpaw, like They're they made a, a lot of boxing movies. Yeah, and then there was like that run of Forty Two and Race, where it was like kind of the Disney mm-hmm. on steroids type of where we're taking this very important historical thing and blowing it out Million and paying Dollar a lot Arm? of money for a song. Yeah. Million Dollar Arm, another one. <laughs> uh, but Moneyball. I remember hearing they were making this and going, how are they going to do that? Yeah. That sounds like a terrible idea. And they, tell the history of yeah, what happened. Yeah, so it's actually it. got a fascinating um, uh, genesis. So it was originally written, uh, there was a version of a screenplay, and then they brought in Steve Zalian, who has done a bunch of different yes. stuff, but has most recently did The Night Of on HBO. So Zalian wrote a script, and David Frankel, who I think directed Wedding Crashers and has done a bunch of other stuff since then in that vein, but he was going to direct... Uh, direct it stuff happened they wanted to bring in Soderbergh and this is like Soderbergh right as he's um coming out of an incredibly fertile and popular period but he's sort of starting to get weirder again and, that, and Steven Soderbergh does that where he'll have like very populist moments and then he'll do you know Ocean's Eleven and Traffic and Aaron Brockovich and then he'll kind of make, go off and make some weird stuff so, but this he, was a lot of Soderbergh with a lot of juice at yeah, this point but he, and Pitt was attached so you can pretty yeah. much get it made they get pretty close to the production of this movie and the whole thing with this and the script is out there on the internet. I think it, it kind of goes in and out of being available. 
But Soderbergh was like, I want to make this with the real David Justice and the real Scott Hatterberg. It was going to be a combination of like interviews with people, real life people playing themselves. And he basically told Sony, I'm going to make this movie in the editing room. It's just going to be a function of of what happens. And for whatever... Like a documentary cross with a movie. exactly. And, And then they get up to pretty much the precipice of production. And whether it was uh, the costs were spiraling out of control or they were just eventually like, we can't make it. I think there was also some issues with actual Major League Baseball's actual participation with it. And so, and it was a Sony movie. And I I just don't think Sony liked it. Yeah. I don't think they wanted to make the so movie in any that case, was the he's, script. He's gone. Mutual or, or Soderbergh leaves or whatever. And that actually leads to Soderbergh, I think, soon after that being like, you know what, I'm make Magic Mike and then I'm done. Well, you left out a crucial part. I think they had spent 10 million bucks already. I'm sure they had. So yeah. they had this point where it was like the 10 million was a sunk cost. Do we make the movie? Yeah. And they basically decided, nah, we're not going to do it. But Pitt. Pitt. He loved the movie. He yeah. was fired up, did not want to let it go. And the irony of that is this is the best Brad Pitt movie. And yeah. it's, it's. Brad Pitt has great taste. If you look at the movies that Brad Pitt produces, even beyond the movies he's even in that he produces, like Brad Pitt makes good movies. He does. And he had a feeling about this. Now, originally it was supposed to be Pitt and Dimitri Martin. And Dimitri Martin was going to play the Paul de Podesta Podest- character. And eventually, that's, that's weird. It is weird. That's a weird. Everything about the Soderbergh movie is fascinating, <laughs> but I, I, but weird. So they wind up apparently. Uh, Catherine Keener introduces Bennett Miller to Brad Pitt. They yep. get along. They're like, let's do this. They get Sorkin in to do a rewrite of the screenplay. And then um, you have Sorkin and Zalian just passing scripts back yeah. and forth, which yeah. two of the best writers we've had the last and 20 you years. Tell, yeah. You can tell that. But it still remains that you still have the question of how are you going to make a movie out of a book that is a nonlinear conversation about advanced statistics in baseball, where the sort of most dramatic moment is a trade deadline phone call. Yeah. And there are no real characters. Yeah. And on the other hand, the reason I think it works really well and it's so rewatchable is it's really a movie about innovation and going against the grain yes. and wondering why we have to do it the way everyone else does it. Let's try something different. Let's take a chance. So it, it actually, for me, this movie really rides the the line between, um, it, it's like, it's the rounders line where it's like, it's just expert enough so that you're like, what is happening? Yeah, this yeah, is yeah. so cool. But on the other hand, they do do some explanations here and there. Like there are the montage with the voiceover or like Jonah Hill will give a very, like, we don't want to buy like, we can't buy like this, these great players, but we can buy runs. Okay, people who run ball clubs, they, they think in terms of buying players. Your goal shouldn't be to buy players. Your goal should be to buy wins. And in order to buy wins, you need to buy runs. He'll explain advanced statistics to the layman very, very well. And I know obviously we're going to get into this. A lot of people have some issues with the way certain things are represented in this movie, but the farther we get away from the 2002 Oakland A season, which is like, who cares? It's just a great movie. Right. And it feels like you don't realize how long 15 years was until they, at the beginning of the movie, they're showing the 2001 Yankees A's series. Yeah. And Giuliani out there. Jeremy, yeah. Giuliani's out there <laughs> back when people like Giuliani, Jeremy, <laughs> Jeremy Giambi's just swollen and yeah. that is all time. Wow. That guy's maybe not doing and this that's naturally. The toss series, yes. isn't it? Yeah. 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 And that led to the nine 11 series, all that stuff. But so they, they open with that series, that, that 2000 and, one series between the Yankees and the A's and the payroll differential, which was like 39 million against 114 million. So if you ever want to see what a movie star does that first time you see Brad Pitt, he is sitting in an empty Oakland Coliseum. 
and he's yeah. like sitting in the stands and he's switching a transistor radio on and off because he knows what's going to happen. He knows the Yankees are going to win. Yeah. Uh, and so he, every five seconds or so, he'll switch it on. And he is just sitting in a dark baseball stadium by himself. And you're like, I don't want to watch anything else in the whole world. That is like that unexplainable magnetism that certain movie stars have where you're just yeah. like watching a guy flip a radio on and off is somehow m- mesmerizing. Like He's, that's the difference between someone like him and the replacement level actor. Yeah. Like I think Clooney could have been a money ball yeah. and made it work. Maybe, but there's something Maybe the Leo, way that they imagine Bean as this kind of ex-jock, which I, I know he was. Brad but really Pitt seems playing like an ex His like, I like to lift weights yeah. and spit and do stuff like that. It it he nails it. He nails the ex-athlete like gait and the the feel for that character is so right. I agree, and the, you know I think Brad Pitt has made some weird choices, but <laughs> he likes to do different things yeah. and dance around, but he's smart enough to, to realize that every once in a while, he just has to be a movie star in a movie. Yes. Like he did that at Ocean's Eleven. He's like, I'm just gonna be a movie star in this movie. Yeah. And yeah, it's the same quality Newman and Redford had way yeah, back he's when. The, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, he does that. And in Ocean's movies, he does that. I think in some ways he does that in World War Z. Cause he's just like, I'm, I'm going to be in every scene and this is a cool action movie. But Moneyball is just the one where, you know, I think that he sometimes is a little he's hurt sometimes because he's so good at playing dumb. Like yeah. when he's Floyd in True Romance, you're like, this is this is the best, man. This is exactly what you are. He's playing himself. Yeah. But when <laughs> and so but Billy Bean in this movie is struggling to he knows that what Peter Brand, who's the Paul D. Podesta character that Jonah Hill plays, he knows what he's telling him is right. And he knows that he wants to get rid of these old fossils who are telling him like, oh, this guy's like Fabio or whatever. Yeah. But he's not quite there in terms of like the intellectual backing for it. And he plays him really well of like this instinctive, it's a, it's all gut for him. And it's really, really, really infused in that performance. I, I can't speak highly enough about it. It The movie has a lot of moments that don't happen enough in movies anymore. It was interesting reading about it and researching, you know, some of the decisions they made and how Pitt was like really motivated to make a movie that feels like it would have been a character movie from the 70s. yeah. yeah. Cause it feels that way. Cause even the scene when he meets Jonah Hill, he's trying to make a trade with the Indians. The baseball scenes in this movie are ridiculous. Yes. <laughs> they just get a guy on the phone. Hey, I'll give you, I'll give you, I want Rincon. Yeah. yeah. Call me back. Yeah. You know, I, I really it's don't think trade works why that way. He flies to Cleveland to talk about Rincon <laughs> to talk. And, it, and Mark Shapiro's got like five guys in his office. Yeah, he's like, ludicrous. no, I'm not going to trade him to you. It's like, well, why did I fly to Cleveland? Then? <laughs> we couldn't have talked about this, but he's watching the room and he's watching these guys kind of lean on Jonah Hill and he's studying him and then he goes in the office and looks for him and they go to the parking yeah, lot. what happened in there? It's all great. And the mystique of Jonah Hill as a serious actor from 2011 gets lost now because he's done that other times. But in this movie, it's like the, the kid from Superbad is yes. now in a drama, like battling with, with Brad Pitt. And it was a cool wrinkle yes. in 2011. I, it's interesting that Dee Podesta took his mo- name off the movie. Yeah. I don't know what, I, I don't know enough about that guy. I guess he was, was he just private or is he just disagreed with the characterization he, he was maybe misrepresented because he went on to run the Dodgers right. and now, now he's, he's running, running the, the Cleveland Browns. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I think is important for this movie is that when it comes to 
just office dialogue, people in offices, people walking from an office to another, people meeting to have a secret meeting about yeah. an office thing. There's nobody better than Sorkin. So Sorkin yeah. can turn that into Shakespeare. But you can often see, like you saw this on the newsroom a little bit, where people are basically like, I get the dialogue, but I'm basically just like miming it. You know what I mean? Like they, And that's where when you have Pitt, and especially the scenes that it's Pitt and Philip Seymour Hoffman. They're amazing. Are, bonkers like there he philip seymour hoffman has no business playing art Howe. there's just no reason for it you know what i mean like you could have had anybody you could have jk simmons you could have so many different people just come in and play art Howe for a week's work right but philip seymour hoffman was friends with bennett miller so he's like yeah sure i'll do it i don't know if philip seymour hoffman liked baseball but those scenes between the two of them where he's like you know i don't care about righty lefty matchups and philip seymour hoffman's like yeah i do <laughs> it's right. amazing these scenes are so incredible but when you have actors who are so good at that those scenes just sing in a way they wouldn't in a normal movie did you read that art howe was actually pissed about the philip seymour hoffman and just pissed about the movie in general no what did he because well, he made him look like a, a, a dog? yeah i think there's a bunch of things that he didn't like one of them was like when they traded mike Mag- magna or they sent down mike magnate whatever his name <laughs> yeah, was 10 days yeah, before yeah. i was like i did that yeah, yeah it was like a lot like, of that we're, stuff. we're getting rid of all these guys you have to pitch chad bradford in the eighth <laughs> right but uh what i thought was interesting was i think it partly pissed him off that hoffman's just like this fat fat actor playing yeah. him he's yeah. probably like i I played baseball for 15 years. I, like, honestly, I don't look like, like I mean, that. I'm sure Art Howe's a great guy, but if, I, I mean, Philip Seymour Hoffman, why wouldn't you want Philip Seymour Hoffman to play? Because he's a baseball player. Yeah. Like, can the guy look like a baseball so player? So here's my thing with this movie. We can get into this now. Wait, hold on. I got one more Philip Seymour Hoffman okay. thing. If you watch carefully, if you've watched it enough times, he's basically playing the guy like Scotty J in Boogie Nights. <laughs> This is what happens to Scotty J as he grows up to Scotty J. He's got the same kind of just perplexed facial expressions and very deliberate. But then there's like a 20% hint of the guy from Talented Mr. Ripley. Tommy. Tommy. How's the peeping? Like that sarcastic guy? That guy? With with a dose of Scotty J. It's a combo of those two. I miss him so much. He was so great. I think Philip Seymour Hoffman was just like, I like, I, I like this script. I like and the I'm just creating this character. I'm not researching Art Howe at all. This is just my idea of what yeah. a baseball manager would act and look like. Right. And he just went with but it. That's the see. I know that when this movie came out in 2011, a lot of people had problems with its accuracy. You know, not only its its accuracy to the book, but the, the accuracy in terms of how it represented that season, and then whether or not it was basically telling like a much different story than the truth. And I totally understand that. But right. here we are in 2016. Right. A lot of stuff's happened in the last 15 years. Do you really care what happened on the 2002 Oakland A's? Like, is that the important part? Are you, were you ever, if Moneyball had never come out to like taint your memory of that team, would Mark Mulder's accomplishments be that much more dimmed this year than they were? If now we have this great movie, and then if you like the A's, you know what Barry Zito did back then or whatever, right? But I don't think people realize that every movie that's based on something takes like dramatic, yes. crazy liberties yes. on whatever the facts actually were. But in sports, it's like, we know what the facts were. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I totally, totally. And I think it's, it's risky. I mean, you often see with these movies that come out, you know, like, um, really soon after, or even during historical moments, whether it's zero dark 30 or W that Oliver Stone movie and whenever the primary people, colors, Snowden, yeah, yeah, all that stuff, like people try to make movies right on the back of history. I think often 
uh, the, the audience's expectations and 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 familiarity with the story is is such that they are not willing to forgive mistakes. And I, nobody is going to be more unforgiving than a baseball fan, and especially well, baseball fans that are into advanced metrics. Right, and also like the Carlos Pena thing is kind of a red herring a yeah. little bit. Yeah. They they made it seem like this guy's the rookie of the year. He's been amazing. Oh, he's going to take such a gamble and trade him to get out of record. Meanwhile, right. like in real life, they sent him down because he was in like 190. Yes. That's that's a tough one. I, w- I wish they had finagled that. They made Chad Bradford seem like this amazing guy. And actually, like the guys who did well on that team, I don't think were people that were part of the Moneyball strategy. Like I mean, Billy Eric Koch. Chavez is in it, right? And he gets kind of like- Jermaine Dye had a big season. Yeah, he was Terrence there. Terrence Long was on that team or no? Yeah. Because there was that outfield been. that was like Long, Dye, and- yeah, and Chavez, right? and they had good pitchers that were there already. But right. I think it was more of the mentality of just, we got to do something different. And the fact that they thought they could replace Jeremy G- or Jason Giambi, who was, you know, the, the MVP, MVP. Yeah. And that they just looked at what his stats were and were like, how can we piece this together with, with multiple G- with people? With his brother, Scott Hatterberg, and, and right. some other guy that nobody had ever heard and of. What are they, and what are the inefficiencies to exploit, which is really the lesson of the movie and the coolest thing of the movie. And something that has completely changed sports over the last 15 years. Absolutely. So it's like one of the quotes in here was people are overlooked for a variety of reasons or flaws. Yes. Joan Hill says that. Yeah. The Island of Misfits toys. It's a great point. And the way they set up like the scouts and the old guys and that classic quote of, uh, when they're talking about that one guy, he's like, he's got an ugly girlfriend. He's noticeable. Got an ugly girlfriend. What's that mean? Ugly girlfriend means no confidence. Okay. Oh, no, you guys are full of it. Artie is right. This guy's got an attitude. An attitude is good. I mean, he's the kind of guy who walks into a room. His dick has already been there for two minutes. Uh, yeah. That's the way scouts talk back then. They yeah. just didn't look at things. When he gets the club head on the ball, it makes a great sound. <laughs> right. <laughs> I've watched this guy. Yeah. Watched you guys I for mean, 40 like, years. You're so the best. Do you think it's offensive to scouts? The way they characterize them. I mean, I, I understand. Course, I would, I would hope it was offensive to them because yeah. they made it, they completely marginalized them and made it seem like their way was dying. And they make it this Freudian thing almost where it's like Bean's revenge against the scouts who lied to him about how good he was. Right. right? Or, or just didn't accurately characterize his or project what he was going to do. Right. Yeah. He, uh, they make that a theme in the movie and I, and I don't know how accurate it was. Yeah. About that part of what stem Billy Bean's resentment of this book, whole system. Right? Like there's some stuff in the book about him being a five tool player. And yeah, the- I would say some of that had to exist, but I think, I think, uh, but is the implication in the book that he's like, I would have just like gone to Stanford or something if it hadn't been these guys who, who dissuaded me from doing that. And well, the, me- the part that's unrealistic is like when he asked Joan Hill, when, you, when would you have drafted oh, would you me? Draft me? Yeah. He's like, I looked at your stats ninth round. It's like, come on. So the, one of the things that with Jerry Maguire and Tin Cup and through Moneyball, these, you know, and, and in a weird way, you have movies like Rudy or uh, Hoosiers or something that are very traditional. Like it's an underdog. There's like a big game. They win. But the really exciting, interesting sports movies are often ones that take some of the skeleton of a sports movie like that, but make it about different stuff. So the best part of Moneyball is this I mean, the most like sort of entertaining part of Moneyball is this part from right after uh, they make Art Howe start pitching Bradford and playing Scott Hatterberg. Right. And then the next scene is this montage with this gorgeous score. Michael Dinah, I think, does the score. And it's like kind of like this Philip Glass music. It's really beautiful. And uh, they just start doing this montage. But instead of it being like this pep talk, he's basically telling guys to take walks. 
Yeah. And then it culminates and it peaks with them going back to the Indians and getting Rincon. Right on the trade deadline, the and trade that- where he he's got four teams on the phone <laughs> yeah. in three minutes. He's making offers. Nobody, you yeah. can never hear what the other teams are offering. Playing Steve Phillips against Mark Shapiro. Against Everyone's Brian just Sabian. on the phone immediately. Yeah. Nobody's like he's in a meeting. He's in the bathroom. Yeah, no, right. they're all they're all right available. And right, all, it's, it's right before cell phones became so ubiquitous. So yeah. he still has his secretaries calling. Yeah, and she's like, Sabian's holding for you on line one. <laughs> Hold on, I got Ed Wade on line two. Yeah. <laughs> but a lot of GM blasts. For the past there. Oh, so yeah. good. Call Ed Wade. He's a good guy. <laughs> but I know why they have to do this stuff. Like I, when I used to watch when when I was living in Boston, I would go over and hang out with my dad and my stepmom. My stepmom's a doctor. And that was when ER started. We would watch ER and she'd be like, oh my God, they'd never do that. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, the nurse would never yeah. be in there for that. I'd be like, shut up. Yeah. Just can I just watch ER? This is why everybody had the feel reaction like they did to the last season of The Wire. Is like all these journalists were like, what the yeah. hell? Uh, like, come on. Yeah. Yeah. But it, it is when, when you get behind the curtain, but you kind of know a little bit about what's behind the curtain. It's tough. Yeah. Didn't bother me that much with my money, but actually bothered me more with draft day. Oh, like okay. those trades they made in draft day, I just couldn't get past it. Like, basically to me, it's like, it's like Olympus has fallen. It's, just right. like, it's not very realistic. Wait, that's I'm getting my, because I want to get my fix back. Yeah, that is true. Yeah. The, the, uh, I think to be a great sports movie, you have to have a chill scene. Yeah. I'm on the record with that. Yeah. Okay. I have to get goosebumps or chills or there has to be one moment. There's gotta be a moment if I'm flipping channels, I'm saying to myself, oh, that scene's coming yeah. up. I'm sticking the around. The Billy Bob Thornton halftime speech is coming. Yeah. Yeah. The 20 game win streak followed by they almost blow the, or 19 game, they almost blow the 11 yeah. zero lead. And then it's 11 11. And, and Hadberg comes to up, care. Yeah. hits the home run. It's a chill scene. Yeah. It's really good. It's yeah. really well done. And it was, they didn't really have a way to end the movie because they got smoked in the playoffs by the Twins. Yes. So they really kind of almost end the movie on that. And then the second ending is the Red Sox. Do you like Sox. the Fenway stuff? Yeah, because, the- you know, obviously the biggest stretch in the whole movie is John Henry making it seem like he was this gregarious <laughs> guy. John Henry's like to- Steve Jobs in this yeah, movie. Yeah, yeah. It's He's like, like, they don't understand. You want to tell them they're wrong. The real John Henry would have just been staring at like a <laughs> thing of sugar the entire time as he awkwardly talked to Billy Bean. <laughs> But it, it is. I love the way that they're like, you want to have an espresso or just hang it out in Fenway Park. Right. That's great. It is an amazing what if, though. Yeah. Because really, he should have gone to the Red Sox. I know he had family stuff and he wanted to stay near his daughter. But when you look back at it, what I think he didn't take into account was how replicable all the stuff he was doing was. Yes. He was like, oh, we got to look at guys who get on base and inefficiencies and and whip and right. these Things that now seem super basic, and any, but at the time I was like, "Whoa, what's Billy Bean doing?" It's like he's doing stuff that Theo Epstein is about to do with the Red Sox, yeah. and all and these teams he's just copy again with the Cubs, and it's yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So I think to go to the Red Sox with the team that they had with four times the payroll, it was almost like he should have just leveraged this one idea that he had that was just about to be replicated. But I don't think he knew that. Yeah. I think you mentioned something there with the family stuff is that, and it's it's kind of the secret sauce to this movie and a lot of the really, really top-notch sports movies, like whether it's whether it's Jerry Maguire and Tim Cup or Bull Durham or, or whatever, is that there has to be that extra sports layer to it. And Moneyball actually is too. It has, first it's got, it's a great 
buddy movie. So it's got a real like Midnight Run, the Sting, Butch and Sundance kind of like Him and odd Jonah couple Hill. paired yeah. together. But you can just tell the chemistry is incredible between the two of them. Yeah. So just hanging out in their office, you're like, this is great. Jonah Hill and handsome actors. It's just he clicks <laughs> with them, man. That's <laughs> he's that's really his, good at it. It's his lane. And then the family stuff, which is you know in most. In a lot of movies, like it'll feel stapled on, and it is pretty ridiculous when Spike Jones shows up as Robin Wright, his ex-wife's new new husband or whatever. But the stuff with the daughter is pretty effective in this movie, right? I thought so. I think it's more than effective. I think you can make a case that the scene when she plays the guitar and yeah. Brad Pitt has that reaction to it makes the whole movie. Yeah. Oh, you need to sing. It's so good. I don't want people to listen to me. Well, honey, I think people would love to listen to you. That's beautiful. Would you sing a little for your dad? Right here in the middle of the store? A little bit. A little bit. I'm just a little bit caught in the middle. Life is amazing. You're all in on that character after that. It's just a great dad-daughter moment, and... And it, you know, classic Sorkin because yeah. that's what he does: dads yeah. and daughters. There's and a lot of Sorkinisms loves in there. Yeah, that's Don't a very Sorkin-y moment. Back in 2002, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that's such a good moment. And those are that's one of those moments why the actors take the script, mm-hmm. where they read that scene, they're like, "Oh, I can't wait. Oh, what should I put my hand on my yeah. face? What do I do? Should I cry? Should I feel like I'm?" But after that, you're all in on the guy, and he's also it's Robin Wright's last long hair. Movie appearance, I think. <laughs> is it? It's the tail end of just print from Princess Bride to 2011. Robin, Robin Wright has Wright. had such a weird so career. So beautiful. Yeah. yeah, but she's the uh, ex-wife. She's married to the dorky to tech Spike guy. Spike Jones. This is incredible. Oh, that's who that was? Yeah. It's so weird. It's just Jones. like Spike Jones is just in Why Moneyball. is he in that movie? I don't know. I think he's friends with Bennett Miller and all and those guys. And why is Chris Pratt, Scott Hatterberg? So Pratt, that was still Parks and Rec Pratt. But yeah. when we were talking about this the other day. There are certain movies where... Now, if you wanted to say, if if I went to you a, a studio right now and I was like, I want to make Moneyball, they'd be like, no, because there's no X-Men or, or Batman in it. But second, right. it would is be the, like, is the GM a superhero? Yeah. They were like, well, who's in the cast? And I was like, Chris Pratt, Robin Wright, Jonah Hill, Brad Pitt. Uh, they would be like, and Philip Seymour Hoffman. Well, Philip Seymour Hoffman. If they he was alive. Like, Chris Pratt is a $25 million a movie guy now. Like yeah. there's the appreciation, if it was a stock, it would be impossible to make that. I think you were talking about, what was the other one you were saying? I was it's saying like that. Working Girl. Working Girl was like that. Because right? Sigourney had, Weaver's in that, right? It had Sigourney and, uh, and Harrison Ford in their primes. Yeah. Melanie Griffith about to be in her prime. And then Alec Baldwin. Yeah. Oh, but that's before right. he'd hit. And then there's a whole bunch of other people like Joan Cusack and all that stuff. But it, it's one of those casts that five years later would have been like, four yeah, times more expensive. Yeah. I love when that happens. So. Yeah. It's really cool. I mean, like I, it's, it's just such a perfectly cast movie. I don't know. Yeah. It's, I, I, it's a shame. I think that they've, the spirit of this movie continues with a uh, big short. You know, I think that they did, it's the same kind of vibe where it's like really well written, really well acted, takes a very complicated idea breaks it down, probably over-dramatizes it in some cases, right? but makes it really uh, accessible for a mass audience. So the heroes of this movie, one of the reasons it's so it's so strange as a rewatch, Chad Bradford. Yes. Scott Hatterberg, Jeremy Giambi, David Justice, and Ricardo Rincon. <laughs> and, and a guy who's supposed to be Paul D. Podesta. Yeah, and, and fake Paul D. Podesta <laughs> yeah. are the people that are turning baseball on its ear yeah. and leading the Oakland A's to an improbable first round loss. Yeah. So when you just look at it on paper, it's like, this is ridiculous. But 
you know, it's really about just changing the mindset. And, you know, the, one of the key scenes is Brad Pitt getting the argument with the scout. Billy, you got a kid in there that's got a degree in economics from Yale. You got a scout here with 29 years of baseball experience. Yeah, You're listening to the wrong one. Now, there are intangibles that only baseball people understand. You're discounting what scouts have done for 150 years, even yourself. Adapt or die. This is about you and your shit, isn't it? Okay. I don't give a shit about friendship, this situation, or the past. Major League Baseball thinks the way I think. You're not going to win. It's great because they don't punch each other, but it's really violent and there's so much anger. And finally, like somebody touches his shoulder, he brushes it off. Yeah. But it's just such a well-written, well-acted scene. I don't even know who that actor is. Yeah, I, Pitt. Uh, uh, the guy, wait, the, which guy? The head scout guy. Oh, I don't know that guy either. I, he, I, he was excellent. Yeah. There, there's also that, That's there's one scene when he goes, he tries to go convince Art how to, to play Hatterberg. The way it ends is like, good meeting. Our chats always reinvigorate my love of the game. Right. And, and then, then he, he like, like waddles off. Kind of waddles off and shoves a, a laundry dumpster away. Right. <laughs> and you can just tell he's so pissed off. Yeah. It's great. Um, what did you think of the book when it came out? Because this is one of those cases where I feel like I this is a lot like No Country for Old Men, where I, the book is incredible and then the movie is just as incredible. And I remember Moneyball, like I, I was a little late to it when the book came out. But it was definitely one of those, I, I read it in six hours. Like it was just so addictive so immediately. It's funny because I had my old website, 97 to 2001. I, rem I remember writing a column about Derek Jeter mm -hmm. in 2001. It was right when the stat stuff was starting and Rob Nair was starting to take hold. And Rob Nair was saying like Jeter was, I forget what the column was, but it, it was something about our Jeter, the stats didn't back up how everybody yeah. felt about him. And I wrote this whole column about how he was the Yankee I was the most afraid of. And it was very dismissive of the stat people. It's okay. like, all right, sit, settle down, everyone over here. Right, right, right. And then the stuff like the when the Moneyball season, that was a real illuminating thing where it's like, wow, I got to relook at this. And I, I think the progress we made from when that book came out all the way through Daryl Morey and the Sloan Conference yeah. and some of the ways football changed. Baseball was the first sport that totally changed. Yeah. And I think even with the Red Sox did, where they were just like, we want on-base guys with power. Right, Euclid. Yeah, 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 yeah. All those guys. Yeah. It was like they went, they had already had Manny in place. They went and got Ortiz from the Twins because he had, you know, they saw something in whatever his stats were and just on down the line. And it completely changed how I followed sports. I remember at 2008, I was, I was trying, I, I was totally sold on baseball and was not sold on basketball. Okay. And just thought, this can't translate to basketball. Basketball relies too much on how you interact with the it's other all, guys. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Like, fuck you guys. Don't tell me this is now bad. Don't rate guys with stats. Like, right. I hated that shit. What was that guy who wrote that piece that Allen Iverson, when he won the MVP, was like the 150th best player oh, statistically? I, don't which, I, I know what you're talking about, but it was I don't the remember. wages of wins. I was like, get the fuck out of here with this stuff. <laughs> but basketball stats, I think have gotten really good. Yeah. And, and some of the stuff where like, where guys shoot in the floor. Um, the pace stats, the defensive plus minus usage like, stuff is cool. The yeah. usage stuff is really cool. And PR as limited as it is, as a stat is still fun to look at. Do you they remember have a bunch like the basketball stuff. team or the moment in basketball where you were like, Oh, was there like an O moment for you? What's Zach Mac typing? What are you typing <laughs> over there? <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, Zach Max with us, by yeah. the way. Came from Brooklyn to work with us. That's I mean, yeah. everybody comes Great from name. Brooklyn. What's a better name than Zach Mack? <laughs> I don't know. We made him in a lab. Uh, I think in retrospect, we didn't see it totally, but the 08 Rockets, when they won the 22 With straight. McGrady. And it was like McGrady. It was like the Kemba Matumbo's dead body and and uh, Chuck Evans and Ray Alston. Yeah. And it was, we couldn't figure out what was happening <laughs> right. in the moment. It was like, what, why, how is this team winning? Yeah. And then now I think if you look back statistically at some of the stuff they figured out, like the amount of threes they took, the way they controlled the pace, the fact that they're rebounding, all this. I'm sure there's some statistical thing that right. made it made totally sense. But that but, was the first time you were just like, this is weird. Yeah. Yeah. Well, cause I knew he was up to stuff cause mm-hmm. I knew him from Boston and I knew he had what he called the model. Yeah. And I, I kind of eventually figured out what the model was, but at the time I was really curious by it, but I was writing my NBA book from 07, 08, 09. I didn't really know how to, measure stuff in the past. Yeah. And a big part of my book was measuring guys from the past against each other and all that. The stats really weren't there. I think if I wrote that book now, I would have leaned much more heavily on the pace stats and um, even stuff like PR. I hated PR when I was doing my book. I was like, what the hell is this? We're going to rate guys but by some arbitrary thing. You would have used those more as like a historical measuring tool. Yeah. Like I, one of my things was about how Oscar Robertson's triple double was totally overrated in 1961, 62 because of the field goal attempts. Right. And I went through and I'm painstakingly going through field goal attempts per game. And now <laughs> they just have the pace rating. Right. But I was like, if they're shooting 120 shots a game, obviously there's going to be 70 rebounds available in every game. Right. So of course he should have but gotten there's, 10. There's something to a kind of, I mean, I, I think that the advanced metrics stuff has really like awakened, is really illuminated so many different parts of the game, but there is something kind of educational about that, like hand, the, the painstaking kind of like looking at the basic numbers that you can see yes. and trying to like derive meaning out of them, even if sometimes the meaning you're getting is not exactly accurate. I agree. Yeah. I, but I do think with baseball, it's it's altered baseball to the point that I don't even think we're allowed to have opinions anymore. <laughs> like I thought it was ludicrous that Mike Trout won the MVP. Yeah. His team finished 21 games out of first place. But you're apparently like the only person in America who believes that. I just think like, what is the MVP then? Are we voting for the best player? Or are we voting for the MVP? Because right. most valuable player to me means that your team Did, achieved something. Right. But then the counter to that is, well, Mike Trout, he shouldn't be penalized because he's on a bad team. Right. So that's fine. Then just call it the best player. I think. Why that, are we calling it most valuable? His team went 72 and 90. I'm actually just, I'm just really bad at numbers and math in general. So the thing that I mostly take from, from Moneyball, from the stuff that Michael Lewis has written about Wall Street, and from a lot of the stuff that's come out since then, especially for basketball, is just like the ability to think differently about it. I remember the first team that I kind of was just like, man, this is just really different. I didn't even like it. I didn't like watching it. And I also was like kind of glad when it was broken up, but was the the Dwight Howard magic team. Oh um, yeah. And I was just like, wait, but do you so think you can have Smith, like, do you think that was an advanced metrics thing or no, he was, it was just, but it was more just like, what if we just tried this? And I think right. that a lot of him pe- with shooters and that it's like, it's like put the best center in the league with shooters. You know what I mean? And, and, and I, I was like, you can do that. You know, you don't have to have a point guard, a shooting guard, a small forward, a power forward. And they all play in these yeah. very specific spots on the floor and have very specific roles. And that was such like a weird, like, Oh Yeah. Why wouldn't you just do that? Now it's impossible to guard the floor because everybody has to crowd around Dwight or play the perimeter. And there's, it's just, 
It's unbeatable unless you're like a better athletic team, which is what they felt they went facing. I don't know who figured out the three point thing first, but whoever figured out that three points were better than long twos, that guy changed basketball. Well, I was, you know, I, I was trying to think on my way over here about what would be good. What would be other cool money balls they could make? I think they could make a really cool seven seconds or less money ball movie. Yeah, I don't know. The, the money ball, I think it's I think it's lightning in a bottle. But it's like just the idea another... of like we're gonna try something different. And you gotta admit True. with the Suns that year, you could get I mean, De Niro's probably a little too long in the tooth to play D'Antoni, <laughs> but you have like so many different opportunities. We got D'Antoni, Gentry, and yeah. then you could have like, you know, Shia LaBeouf could play Steve Nash. <laughs> 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 I feel like seven or sec- seven seconds or less was really just give Steve Nash the ball with yeah. pace. Yeah. It was, a, it was a tiny bit overrated. I think what Dan Tony's doing with James Harden is much more innovative. Because he's like, just like you just have the ball all the time. Not just that, but he unleashed him as a passer. I never knew James Harden was as good of a passer as he is. Did yeah. you? No, I didn't not. I didn't think he was interested in that. I think it's inconceivable to me that somebody has a chance to average 30 points and 13 assists a game. Yeah. It's just like, unless you're shooting, like in 1962, you're taking 120 shots a game. That right, just the usage rate slash responsibility slash uh, high high efficiency to be able to do that is off the charts. Maybe Can we talk should, about Brad Pitt. Yeah, sure. Let's talk about Brad Pitt. Has Brad Pitt overachieved, underachieved, or achieved the right amount for what his talent was? And the possibilities that his career had in your mind? I think that Brad Pitt has overachieved based on his actorly gifts. Like, I don't think that he's actually like a stunning actor. And when he pushes himself out into the outer reaches of playing, a, you know, a Kundun and he's climbing a mountain to go meet, you know, the, the Dalai Lama or whatever that movie was, but I can't remember. But when he's, when he's in these seven like days super in, serious, seven years in Tibet, seven years in Tibet. Yeah. It felt like seven years. It did. And, um, I think when Brad Pitt leans into the fact that he is probably one of the most just naturally charismatic movie stars we've had in the last 30 years, he just makes incredible movies. Well, it's weird. Cause who was the one who said that Brad Pitt would have been the greatest character actor of all time? Oh, yeah. I mean, I don't know who said that, but that's exactly <laughs> Brad Pitt. Because is, he was too handsome to be a character actor, but that's what he should have been. He should have been like John, late, yeah. late career John Voight. He's or he's he's just Manu Ginobili. Like if, if if he just comes in for 25 to 35 minutes, there are a lot of times where, you know, Brad Pitt is carrying a movie and it doesn't necessarily work out. So if you go through his IMDb. Yeah. In my opinion, if if you're going to be like a real A-lister who had a real long career that had a lot of twists and turns in a good way. So this is starting with like 91 with Thelma. And right. Louise. Yeah. He, after 25 years, I need like 10 movies. Okay. So Thelma's great performance. True Romance. Um, true Romance. So those are, that's a star-making performance in Thelma and Louise and then a like icon-making performance right. in true, true Romance. One of the legendary pre-internet performances. Oh, incredible. Post-internet, that goes to a whole other level. But pre-internet, that was just like underground. We're talking about it at bars yeah. and stuff like that. Uh, seven. A classic. Seven's a great a classic. movie that he's great in and has great scenes in and actually plays a character, not just Brad Pitt. It's also really good because Brad Pitt is just... I. This is. I'm going to hit this again. He's very good at playing people who are up against the barriers or barriers of their own intelligence. Right. So like him getting cliff notes about Dante's Inferno, it like really works for that character. 
Fight Club. Yeah. The lost great Brad Pitt performance. Brad and Pitt- a great movie that I, for some reason, has not aged the way I thought it would age. To me, it's like the way Boogie Nights is always on cable, even now in Rounders. And I feel like Fight Club should be in that mix. It's, yeah, but I feel I, you like never Fight see Club it. had a kind of, it's gone through so many different cycles of critical appreciation because of, you know, people thinking it's a satire or not a satire and people taking it too seriously and be like, yes, like screw your Ikea furniture and your like yeah. parochial like government. It's like, just come on. What a movie. He's, Ocean, he's, Ocean's Eleven. Yeah. And can I say something here about Ocean's just in general? Brad Pitt is one of the great two man actors. So like if he's in a movie with Clooney, Morgan yeah. Freeman, oh, Edward like Norton, uh, Jonah Hill, if he's got somebody he's like paired with, he's great. When he's out on his own and it's doing Meet Joe Black, it's tough. Yeah, that's kind of like me. <laughs> uh, Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Let's revisit I'm not that. giving it to him. Okay. I need to watch it again, but it, yeah. it had so much personal life baggage hanging over it. Yeah. I actually think it was probably a really good movie that, that it was in its own merits would have been. Yeah. yeah I, but it was like, a, once you saw it, it was like, oh yeah, well, th- this is not even as interesting as what's happening outside of your life. Would you give him Inglorious Bastards? I liked it. I liked Inglorious Bastards. Put that on the short list of Brad Pitt movies. Like I'm taking ten yeah, Brad Pitt he's movies not, to he's a desert not, island. I mean, he's not one of the biggest. To me, he's really good in that movie. But it's so that movie's so dominated by Christoph Waltz. Moneyball. Can and I you, can I shout out a, 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 a an underrated one? Sure. Spy Game. Yeah. Okay. With I wouldn't Redford? put that on the desert island. No. I mean, he really hasn't. Ocean's Eleven. Yeah, you're right. So so Ocean's Eleven. It's it's a weird IMDb. He's and great I, and I think in, he, in Jesse James. I think he's made the mistake that Cruz kind of made too for a while where you just kind of forget to be Brad Pitt yeah. for too many years. Cruz did the same thing. He said, like, just be Tom Cruise every once in a while. That's why he makes a Mission Impossible movie every yeah. two months. And then he was like, I'll just be Tom. Matt Damon is great at every once in a while. Like, I'm just going to be Matt yeah. Damon. I'm going to be in The Martian. Yeah. yeah. I'm just going to do Matt Damon things. <laughs> it's something that I wish Leo would do a little bit more as an actor because Leo's always playing somebody. It's just like, be Leo, yeah. be like a divorce lawyer. Who's still in love with his ex-wife. McConaughey's and, really good at playing McConaughey every yeah. few years. It's good. It's not bad. And the guy who's the best at it ever is Denzel. Yeah. yeah. He's usually Denzel. Yeah. Just with like maybe a slightly different haircut or a different job, but he's Denzel. And then occasionally he'll break out and he'll be training day Denzel. Sure. Or he'll be like, you don't live in this courtroom, do you, Denzel? <laughs> who is, uh, who would you like to see to end it on sports movies? Like who, who's, who needs, who, who needs a sports movie right now? Oh, that's a good like one. Like an actor you think is like right there and ready to do a sports movie. Other than Costner? You think I just think Costner, I think he should, there's movies he has in sports movie. He hasn't made a hockey movie. <laughs> he hasn't been a wrestling coach yet. There's sports that he yeah. hasn't done. He should make the sequel to Foxcatcher. Well, who are they? <laughs> I think Leo could do one. Couldn't he? I don't know. I can't tell if Leo like is like, un, like I know he goes to his sporting events, but do you think he could make a sports movie? Like what would Leo do? Could Leo be like a, like an actor? I think I, Leo, I'm sorry, not an actor, uh, like an owner, like somebody who made his money. In the, the I mean, Leo like played a Brady in a Deflate Gate movie. No, I, I don't see him as like an athlete. I see him as like a behind, like he's like an agent. He's a disruptor. Something. Yeah, almost like Brad Pitt and Moneyball, where Leo's like the new wave owner in the NFL that the other owners don't oh, like. He's like Robert Para. Yeah, he's, yeah, he's Robert <laughs> Nobody knows how he got his money. Yeah. Why are you talking to him in the owners' meetings, Leo? <laughs> it's one of those type of things. Who? Why? Who would you say? 
Who did I? Um, I'm glad Michael B. Jordan made one. I'll tell I'm you glad that Michael much. B. Jordan made one. I'm it glad, was bad you know, time. He Mile, can make another one. Miles for Teller me. just made this one, but I think he's he's good good at him. Like but I they think all do boxing though. Yeah, that's I know, why they all Woody, just want to get chiseled and be naked in their posters. It's just like why, look how look how good I look. Woody Harrison when he did White Man Can't Jump, it completely reinvented his career. Yes, because he was just Woody on chairs, yeah. and then all of a sudden he's Woody in this Harrison basketball movie. Woody can take literally like eight years off from making good stuff, and then just show up in something, and everybody's just like, "I love Woody Harrelson." He's got another one coming, right? Woody Harrelson doesn't he? He has another like Oscar movie. I saw the poster when I went to the movies the other day. Oh, he's like in everything. It's so hard to remember what he's in. He's, I would like to see. I don't know. I'm trying to think of like who I would really want to see. Well, David should make him one. He, I know he made the rugby movie. Nah, I'm still mad about that one. Can Affleck do one? Nah, he's too old. I think these guys are too old now. They're all late forties. It's yeah. got to be maybe Chris Pratt. Pratt could do it. Doubles back. Yeah, something. I don't know. Part of my fear with with sports movies and why we want to do this Moneyball one, this pot in general, is that you know all the ideas are kind of done. I so bet they where say do you that go? Every five years for sports movies, they'll figure it out. They are. You can't just keep doing the Rocky plot though. It's got it. And I also feel like you know what would have been a really interesting one. And this is obviously can't happen for a variety of reasons, but. I would love to see someone have done the Chip Kelly story. If the if Chip Kelly his career had gone in a different direction, like if he had been more successful, but right. that whole idea of someone coming up from New Hampshire, going to Oregon, and like this weird system with the with the signs on the sideline, you know, like the way they call their plays with like you know different different posters on the sideline. I think there's something like really visual and also like it has that it's an innovative thing that nobody believed in, and then it worked out. But with Chip Kelly, the problem is it it didn't work out. <laughs> See, here's the thing, and this is one of the reasons sports movies have changed so much since I would say 08, 09. 30 for 30 and the sports documentary boom has blown out some of these stories yeah. in ways where a lot of these stories should just be sports well, documentaries. They're going to make a Leicester City movie, apparently. Really? Yeah. And a that's sports a, movie about Leicester yeah, City? Yeah. And that's one of those where I think, you know, the 30 for 30 on that would. It, would this, probably have been better, it's right? It's so unbelievable. I don't really need a, a story. I mean, mir- they could make it in 15 years, like the way they did Miracle or something, but it's not the same as like, I, I, I just saw it. Like, what do I need? What do I need to see? Miracle is a good example of probably would have been just better as an awesome documentary. Yeah, but you just don't but get Kurt still Russell. watchable. You got to get Kurt Russell. That's you don't get thing. Kurt Russell. Yeah. But so I, I wonder like with the documentaries and the way it, we used to have this issue when we were doing the 30 for 30s where we'd be talking about ideas. Mm-hmm. Like, is that a movie or a documentary? Most of the time it was a documentary, but sometimes it was a movie. Like, I don't think Moneyball could have been a documentary. Yeah. You know, so I guess it's a case by case basis. I don't know where this stuff goes. I don't, Sam Shuby wrote on The Ringer this month about uh, boxing movies mm-hmm. and why do they keep making them? Yeah. And I think it's all actor vanity. Personally. I think it's actor vanity. I think Get it's also shape. very, very, very understandable of like the stakes. Like it's, you don't have to explain boxing to anybody. It's just fighting, you know, and you don't have to explain like nobody makes boxing movies about champions. They make them about the underdogs and it's like pretty straightforward. Um, One thing I would like to see with sports movies, they made the mistake of like, do you do Ali and it covers from 1961 to 1975 and it's this big sweeping thing that doesn't really target anything. Yeah. I would like to see sports movies about specific points. Oh, cool. You know, like if somebody made a movie about Michael Jordan, 1993, and I'm not saying they would, and I think it would be really hard to do a basketball movie where somebody's playing Michael Jordan. Yeah. But you're just in that spring with, you know, all the gambling stuff and three straight years and the media picking at him and all the way through and just like him kind of, 
taking all his frustrations out in the court. Yeah. That's still probably a documentary, you know? And I, I think that's the problem. And that's how you end up with, with these niche niche movies Yeah, <laughs> where, uh, you know, the wrestler is a good example. That's, that's a sports movie. I don't think that could have been a documentary, but it has been, we've seen it like Razor Ramon, E60 yeah. half hour thing on Razor Ramon. I kind of like the sports movie version of that more. I think there's something that's always going to be thrilling about seeing a movie star play an athlete. So I think that these movies will keep going on. It really just depends on their interest in doing it. All right. So our final verdict on Moneyball is, oh, I forgot one thing. This is really important. Hit me. Brad Pitt lost the 2012 Oscar. In this, for, for, was he nominated? For, for Moneyball. Yeah. He was nominated. Okay. First question, do you know who won the Oscar? This is, we had Grantland at this point. This is only four years ago. Was long, it somebody in a David O. Russell movie? Long silence from Chris Ryan. No? Do you know Zach Mack? It was the dude from the player, or the, I'm sorry, the artist. Oh, yeah. That right. silent movie. That guy. Uh, that guy. That guy won the Oscar for that movie. Your other <laughs> nominees were George Clooney for The Descendants. Uh-huh. That's fine. Which, it's fine. It was a nominated, nominatable, nom, nominable, nominatable it was, performance. It was, it was better. Yeah. <laughs> Gary Oldman for Tinker, Taylor, Spy. He's pretty good in that, but that He's was good. largely based on somebody else's performance of that role. And I just have in my notes, Beecher, B-I-C-H-I-R, whoever Who's that? that is. I don't know. That was the other nominee. <laughs> That's all it says? Beecher. Okay. So that was Brad Pitt's best chance. Yeah, I don't probably. think it happens now. Probably. And you look back and it's like, Really? The guy from the fucking artist won the Oscar? He didn't say anything? It's sometimes that's really How did the that strangest happen? thing. Yeah. Right. Goodfellas didn't win Best Picture. I mean, this yeah. is just the world we live in. I don't like it. Okay. I, I wish we could go back in time and redo the Oscars. All right. So we're going to keep doing these, but Moneyball, best sports movie possibly of the century. Yeah. I, I, w- I mean, maybe not the best but certainly the most rewatchable, right. which in my opinion makes it the best because I think a big part of this is how does it hold up? Yes. I think it held up at the time. It was very well received critically. It's very well acted. It's incredibly well done. Pick got nominated for an Oscar. So that part was great. And then over time, it's just I think it's really held up. Yeah. And I think it captures a really important moment in sports, you know, whereas like you take something like Million Dollar Baby which I didn't feel like should have done as well as it did with the right. awards when it happened. I would never watch that again. Would you? No. Would you be like, oh, cool. Hey, honey, come on in. Million Dollar Baby's on. Like, I never <laughs> want to see that movie again in my life. So I think there's something to that. Yeah. That you want to rewatch them. All right. Anyway, thanks, Chris Ryan. Thanks, Paul Simmons. 